At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Nigel Inkster, the former Director of Intelligence and Operations at the Secret Intelligence Service, otherwise known as MI6, who is now a Senior Advisor at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. Nigel, thanks so very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program. Thank you very much, Vago. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. Uh, Nigel, for you know regular listeners of the program, I apologize because uh, I want to get your uh, take on uh, sort of broader cyber issues, but I have to start with Russia's cyber operation or lack thereof. There was a widespread expectation that Russia would either mount cyber operations or significant cyber operations in advance of the invasion, and then certainly retaliate against the West in the in the wake of uh, the imposition of sanctions. And yet, we haven't seen that happen. Um, some maintain that Putin merely is biding his time; that it, you know, given he has an attack, yet doesn't mean that he can't trigger. Uh, the cyber bombs that he's installed uh, in our systems or influenced the 2020 elections in the United States or elsewhere. Others say this is evidence that America and its allies are are effectively defending forward. What What's your take on where we are now and where we are likely to go and what we should be ready for? Well, as you say, um, Vago, the, the big surprise thus far in Putin's Ukraine campaign is that it was not preceded by you know, a, a kind of cyber onslaught um, in in the way that we saw around um, the Crimea crisis in uh, 2014. Um, and nobody, I think, is, is quite clear about why um, that should have been the case, why, why Putin did not, uh, why Russia did not um, engage in an all-out assault to disable uh, Ukraine um, digitally. Um, I, I think there are a number of possible explanations and they almost certainly overlap. I think the first is that um, we may have in some ways overestimated Russia's capacity in much the same way as we appear to have overestimated their basic military capacity. Um, We're seeing um, that determined Ukrainian resistance is um, keeping in check um, numerically much bigger and on paper better armed um, Russian invasion force. Um, that has come as something of a surprise, albeit welcome. I think um, w- w- what is clear is that in the run-up uh, to Putin's invasion, NSA, GCHQ, the two major Western um, signals intelligence uh, agencies um, achieved very significant domination over Russian communications. A lot of this was being done, a lot of Russian activity was being done uh, using open, unprotected uh, phones um, and um, other 
uh, electronic media. Um, and it seems that Russia's own um, secure communications networks have not been performing very well. We know that, for example, uh, in Ukraine itself, um, the, the Russian military's secure communication links have not been working. Now, whether that's due to um, inherent uh, weaknesses um, in, in this system, or whether it is a function of agencies like NSA discreetly throwing sand into the cogs, um, it's impossible to say uh, without having access to classified information. But I think that is one factor that we need to think about. The second factor is that I think probably the Russian calculation is that they actually need to keep Ukraine online for their own purposes. And that um, taking down all, all Ukraine's um, systems would not benefit them, particularly if they do aspire to take over and occupy the country. So that's looking um, increasingly problematic, but I think that's ultimately what, um, what they were aiming for. And uh, they, you know, in, that, in that context, they need to keep things open. The other thing, of course, is that they need to be able to, to gather intelligence on uh, their Ukrainian opponents. And uh, this, you know, keeping um, the networks uh, functioning is, is one way of doing it. Um, what comes next is, is an interesting question, because you're absolutely right that if Russia were so minded, it would um, potentially be able to launch a succession of highly damaging attacks against uh, Western interests, whether um, state um, <coughs> or private sector or, or both, um, will it do this? Well, again, I think Russia may to some extent be deterred by a realization that their own cyber defenses are actually not that great. Uh, and that if it came to it, they might um, find themselves overmatched uh, by uh, Western capabilities. So I think they're going to probably think quite carefully about that. I mean, no doubt that if Putin feels that this enterprise is failing, he will lash out in various ways and the cyber domain is obviously one. But how successful you know, th this might prove to be is another question. I mean, I think the other thing is that everybody's learned a lot from 2014. Um, Ukraine's own defenses um, at that time you know, very, were very weak. A lot of time and effort has been put into um, enhancing these um, and you know, major Western actors, uh, both state and private sector, have invested a lot of time and capability in, in ensuring that Ukrainian systems are more resilient and more survivable than they were um, eight years ago. Um, and I think the same is, is probably true um, for Western networks more generally. There's been a lot more focus on resilience and survivability um, and recovery. Um, so uh, again, that is a factor that we, we, we have to take into account. Um, let me take you to the uh, question of, you know, as, as you said, right, I mean, there are folks who did learn lessons, certainly Ukraine uh, learned lessons, but in the United States, the debate is that we're not as prepared as we need to be, right? The, the warning went out from uh, NSA, US Cybercom and uh, FBI and the Cyber Security Infrastructure Security Agency telling everybody, look, shields up, defend as best you can, prioritize your defenses. Um, how would you rate where, 
UK and European defenses are, both at the government level uh, and at the corporate level, um, given that you know the issue uh, certainly is a bigger issue in the United States than it's been uh, generally uh, in Europe. Financial institutions tend to do better. Mm. Um, but but how do you rate where UK and European defenses are, and what yeah. more needs needs to be done? Well, I think the the, the short answer is that uh, you know um, everybody needs to be doing more, no matter how good they are. Within the UK, I think things are not too bad. Obviously, we have some significant advantage at GCHQ, um, a front rank um, signals intelligence service closely linked with. Uh, NSA, but we also have this new institution, the National Cybersecurity Center, um, which um, the, the core of which um, is um, the part of GCHQ that is responsible for um, cyber protection. Um, but I think the interesting thing about that organization since it's set up is that there are about 200 um, representatives from the private sector uh, sitting in there. Um, and most of them are paying um, the cost of their, their own staff. So they clearly see significant benefit in this. And I think what's happened within you know, National Cybersecurity Center is that uh, um, you've got a mechanism that enables what previously would have been tightly held classified information um, to be made available um, to people who needed to defend their networks uh, in ways that wouldn't previously have been possible. And NTSC you know, has um, adopted you know, a high, prof uh, high public profile. You know, in, in, in my world, we used to joke that you could tell in, in t uh, an assertive signature by the way that uh, he or she looked at your shoelaces rather than their own. But actually, what we are seeing is that uh, the folk at GCHQ are more than capable of um, adopting and maintaining an effective public profile. So I think in the UK, we're, we're, we're not too badly off. Um, Europe, the picture is much more mi mixed. I mean, you, there, there, there are you know, states, um, some small states, Estonia being an obvious case in point, um, but other major states you know, like France, where, 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 where capabilities are, are significant. Um, you know, around Europe, obviously, you know, the picture is mixed. But I think the message is getting through. Um, there's been enough um, enough bad things have happened. Um, I think to make uh, particularly the private sector realize that they cannot ignore the digital value of their enterprises any longer. They need to actually take this seriously and do something about it. There's still plenty more to be done. But uh, yeah, I think there is a more, um, you know, the, the, we're starting to see the outlines of, of a more, more unified approach. And obviously um, entities like NSA and GCHQ uh, are doing what they can to help uh, other European states get to where they need to be. There is some extraordinary cooperation, obviously, across the five eyes. Um, but France, uh, very, very important power, very strong in, in, in cyber. The Germans are no slouch at it, right? I mean, there are a lot of other European governments yeah. that are actually good at this game and even other governments around the world that are good at this game. Does there need to be, what, what sort of more systemic and organized global collaboration does there need mm -hmm. to be? Because cyber has tended to be along national lines, right? The yeah. United States and the EU can be pace setters in that. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, UK outside the EU, obviously, uh, but can have its own standards. But what do we need to be doing on a global basis 
given that democracies are all facing and open and free economies are facing virtually the identical challenges. And as mm -hmm. we share more and have more technological cooperation, a Russia or China decides who's the weakest link in this to attack. And then, you know, just just was was in the case in your old job, uh, Nigel, right? You you target Intel, you know, you might not be able to get what you want from a big power, but actually somebody else could have weaker defenses that you exploit. How do we need to be thinking about this in a sort of a more global fashion in terms of um, standard setting and approaches to make sure that actually our defenses are, are as good as they need to be, given the nature of the assault we're under? Well, I, I don't think that uh, you know, there, there is a single um, silver bullet that would get us where we need to be here. You know, like uh, most facets of security, it's about layered defenses. It's not one thing. It's the totality of the, of the measures that you undertake that um, uh, provide effective protection. Um, and I think you know, the, that uh, obviously you mentioned uh, technical standards um, and um, you know, I think a key thing in this is a push for security by design. We're still not seeing anything like enough of that, I think, um, in, your, um, in, in, in the Western tech sector. Um, and I think it is now incumbent on those governments that can most influence uh, the behavior of uh, the private technology sector to really double down um, on, on, on this whole issue of, of secure by design. And then that's all the more important when we come uh, to issues like artificial intelligence, um, you know, machine learning and so on. We, we, we need to think hard about uh, how um, we, we, we do that. Um, obviously, uh, the more open uh, exchanges of uh, information you know, can be um, you know, so much the better and also arrangements of you know for collaborative uh, work um, in defending against a particular incidents we need to think um, again about issues like uh, ransomware uh, not forgetting that I think about 75 percent of all ransomware where uh, does actually emanate from uh, Russia one way or another. Um, you know, um, are we handling are we handling this correctly? You know, do do we need to you know look differently at, at this question of uh, paying ransoms, and so on and so forth? And I don't have any uh, preconceived ideas about what the right answer is here. So the, yeah, there's plenty more um, that 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 can be done. But at the same time, I think we need to bear in mind that if we can avoid ending up in a situation where the world is technically bifurcated, you've got China um, plus Russia and, and, and the usual suspects on, on one side um, and Western liberal democracies on the other using different systems and um, effectively not talking to each other, that is something that we need to try and avoid if we can. So continuing to talk um, at a time of growing difficulty is going to be important. I think that's particularly true in the case of China. I want to bring uh, China into the discussion in, in, a, in a moment, but I want to get your sort of wider strategic sense. Um, the discussion here is, as it is in the UK, is whether or not we're actually in the early chapters of uh, World War III. Um, Russia certainly has precipitated the crisis. The world has responded economically. Um, China uh, and Russia struck a, uh, an alliance uh, at, at the strongest or a partnership 
at the weakest uh, with no limits. Uh, the Chinese have been under pressure. The U.S. National Security Advisor and uh, China's top dip uh, diplomat, uh, Yang uh, Jiechi, uh, met in Rome uh, in, for a seven-hour meeting. And the, the upshot of that was China says that if I want to trade with Russia, that's my problem. Um, and we look for a peaceful resolution to this. And oh, by the way, Taiwan is ours. And there's no similarity between the Ukraine uh, example, right? Um, folks have been talking about democracies banding together. Folks have been talking about the need to, uh, you know, wake up um, and and move more quickly uh, against these two uh, assertive um, powers that are trying to live outside uh, the rules based order in many respects. Is this the wake up call that we need? And what are the lessons from, from your standpoint, um, given ideally China sort of sides with us, but actually it, it may distinctly not? Yeah. Well, I think we need to distinguish in many ways between uh, where, where Russia and China um, stand, um, because although you know, they, they, they do um, share um, some important perspectives on the world, and as you say, have been talking about an alliance without limits. Uh, in reality, I think they, you know, they, they look at things rather differently. Um, for China, uh, the, the, the premium is stability. Um, stability with Chinese characteristics, perhaps in the world, but stability nonetheless. Whereas um, for Vladimir Putin, um, the aim is uh, disruption and instability. Um, Russia, you know, under Putin, sees its security and stability as a function of everybody else's insecurity um, and instability. And it's quite clear now that uh, Putin sees him, you know, see, see, has a conception of Russia, you know, as as an imperial state in constant contention uh, with the West, with uh, certainly with, with Western Europe. China sees things, I think, in more nuanced terms. Um, you know, there, 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 there's a long running um, debate about what exactly China's um, end game is. Um, and I think it is certainly a world that um, respects Chinese interests and uh, uh, doesn't uh, go against them, but I don't think China aspires to kind of global hegemony that uh, we've seen from the United Kingdom before and now the United States um, with large overseas military deployments and um, significant overseas commitments. China doesn't want to be in, in, in that situation. So, so we're looking at uh, something rather different. That said, it is certainly the case that China and Russia <clears throat> um, are making common cause against what they regard as uh, US hegemony. Both um, see themselves as great powers and both believe that as great powers, their interests should take precedence over customary international law. You know, that has been made you know, sort of clear for, for some time. Um, but the situation in Ukraine, I think, um, has made things difficult for China in, in, in the sense that um, they kind of, they've kind of been put on a spot at a time when they didn't really want to be. Um, it's not clear what China knew about Putin's intentions uh, prior to the invasion. They clearly knew something. And of course, the US and the UK were at pains to share with China the intelligence that they had. 
um, and this was um, disregarded. Um, so where, you know, where, where, where does China sit on this now? Well, basically, I think they'd rather Putin hadn't done what he's done. Yeah. Now that he's done it, they, they, they feel that they can't really um, not back him, uh, at least presentationally, though how far in practice they will go to help, I think um, remains to be determined. Uh, they will do what they think they can get away with. And I think for Putin, for, for Xi Jinping, uh, the last thing he wants uh, to see is Putin fail. Uh, because for China, the kind of nightmare outcome here is that Putin fails, um, uh, loses power, um, somebody like Navalny takes over, and Russia um, turns towards the West. For China, from a geostrategic perspective, that would be a disastrous outcome. I mean, you know, meaning effectively um encirclement by 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 the united states and its allies so clearly it it would like to avoid that outcome at the same time um, let's not forget that china has significant interests um in relation to europe you know china's trade with uh, europe is um you know several times the size of china's trade with uh, with russia and china has you know articulated aspirations to um, see that grow. Uh, China also has big ambitions in relation to the Belt and Road Initiative, all of which involve Europe. Um, and it's only now belatedly dawning on China that what has happened in Ukraine does represent a kind of event horizon, um, a paradigm shift, um, and that relations uh, with Europe aren't going to be as they were before, that you know, this is different. I think you know, Chinese leaders are still trying to come to terms with this, maybe persuading themselves so that at the end of the day, you know, because they've, they've, they've drunk their own Kool-Aid just as Putin has done and you know, convinced themselves you know, that the, the, the West is in terminal decline. We hear this all the time in leadership speeches and uh, articles. Um, you know, uh, the East is rising, the West is in decline, um, you know, and, and, and they clearly you know, do believe it. But at the same time, they, they've been taken aback by the speed and unanimity that so far the West has shown in, 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 in dealing with um, um, you, you know, the Ukraine issue and dealing with Russia. Um, and you know, this, this clearly does give them, give them pause for thought. I think it's very unlikely that China is going to take a very clear position in this conflict and certainly is unlikely to do anything that America wants it to do. And almost by definition, that's not going to be um, acceptable. Um, and you know, a clear defeat for Putin, as I said, would, would be um, seen by China uh, 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 as, as a very bad outcome. At the same time, China is always consulting its own interests first and is looking to see how it can derive advantage for this. One thing that one almost certain outcome um, of the whole situation is that Putin will be obliged for the mur um, to um, get closer to China and, and potentially you know, end up as a Chinese vassal state. Um, if 
that, that he will not be happy with that outcome. And I think that will increase his animus against the West and increase his determination to, uh, to take the West on. As much as we've um, recognized the importance of uh, Henry Kissinger's dictum of under no circumstance should we allow these two to get together, if these two are going to be getting together, right, and just in the last year or so, they've dramatically increased trade uh, between them. And as you said, the Chinese are going to draw all sorts of lessons. Wow, the three billion, the three trillion dollars that we have in dollars could be really in jeopardy, uh, for example, right? I mean, so there's talk about conversion to commodities and a whole bunch of other things with those mm-hmm. assets. Um, ultimately, what is it that the United States and Western powers need to do and how quickly do we need to do it if we're going to end up potentially confronting both of these guys simultaneously? Um, because the Chinese are also very adept gray zone actors, right? We, we may have had hegemony um, in order to sort of drive a more democratic vision of the world, whereas the Chinese hegemonic view is somewhat more of a mercantilist view uh, of, mm-hmm. of China in the center of a vast, maybe not security empire, but right. I mean, their mercantile tendencies are also buying them friends in the United Nations, right? And and indeed, you know, certain proxy capabilities they view to be important. How do we need to be sort of girding for this? And then I've got two final lightning round questions for you. Sure. Well, I think the first thing is that um, you know there's a lot I think that can be done with China by way of um, quiet diplomacy. Um, while Xi Jinping may have an increasingly visceral instinct to adopt um, anti-American positions, by no means everybody um, in the top uh, echelons of the party state administration shares that outlook. And we have seen that though he aspires to be an uh, an autocrat, Xi Jinping uh, does have to take account of contrary views um, expressed by his peers. You know, we, we, we've seen this recently um, you know, in a number of areas, you know, changes you know, to economic policy once it became clear that um, um, ideas like common prosperity um, and methods to control the so-called uh, disorderly expansion of capital were having a damaging effect on, on China's economy. Um, you know, we, we, we saw something, not quite a U-turn, but definitely a course correction, as Chinese officials have taken to calling it. So I think, you know, the, 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 um, the, the, there are mechanisms in China to, incor- you know, to, to get the leadership to think hard about where, where, where their interests uh, really lie. And for all under Xi Jinping, you know, China has been moving, uh, you know, trying to move towards greater self-sufficiency. The reality is that uh, China's prosperity thus far has been very dependent upon a globalized um, um, economy, globalized um, supply chains. Um, and that situation is unlikely uh, to change in, in the foreseeable future. So China is going to have, you know, has to think very carefully about what it wants to do. And as I said, China is about stability. Um, it doesn't want uh, to get um, into conflict if it can avoid it. Let's not forget that China's you know, economic prosperity that people are justifiably enjoying has not been a very long duration. And uh, there are a lot of people who are really worried that uh, ill-considered policy judgments could bring it to a precipitate end. 
So, you know, the, um, we, we have all that you know, to work with. I think that, you know, there, there, there comes a point at which, um, you know, with things like economic sanctions, you, you do ultimately run out of road. Um, and I think you know, this you're going to be um, become very evident in, in, in relation to the Ukraine uh, issue. My sense is that there will come a point at which you know, the penny drops, if it hasn't already, in NATO, in the West, um, that any concessions to Putin will simply embolden him and um, encourage even worse behavior. So I think at some point there's probably going to have to be a hard military stop here. We're not there with China yet, um, and there's no particular reason why um, why we need to be. But certainly, we need to look to our defences and you know, our, our capabilities, to make sure that they're they're in good order, and um, also make sure that that our own economies. Um, um, you know, are in the best shape they can be, and it's not just about the economies; it's about all the, you know, kind of supporting capabilities, in particular the development of human capital. I mean, I know this is something that the Biden administration has uh, kind of majored on. It's easy to talk about; it's not so easy to do it. Um, but uh, the, the, these are things um, that um, I think are going to make more of a difference over the long haul than any specific actions that we might take at any given moment. As you said, there will have to be a hard military stop to this. How does it end, uh, Nigel? Um, how do we stop him? Because there is this sense when given an inch, uh, Vladimir Putin takes a mile. And if he sees any weakness, us not shipping MiGs, for example, he then puts the statement, no arms are acceptable and strikes a base where uh, we're training, you know, the Ukrainians are training from. He's very good at messaging. How does this end? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, probably two um, most likely, you know, two, two scenarios. One is, you know, a, a long drawn out, messy, you know, um, Chechnya, you know, Syria style war of attrition. Um, you know, that seems to be where we're probably heading for um, at, at the moment. But another possible scenario, which I hope will gain more traction, is precisely the idea that, that NATO starts to lean into Putin's um, military space rather than always drawing back under you know, what I regard as a spurious threat of uh, resort to uh, uh, the use of nuclear weapons. Um, it's a big gamble. It's a difficult thing to sell to populations. Um, but you know, I personally would like to see a lot more thought given um, you know, to, to, to um, uh, a, a more forward-leaning uh, forward and aggressive NATO posture vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Whether that will be possible, I know you know, we're looking at the NATO membership, it may not prove um, an entirely easy sell. Um, but I honestly think that if we really want to you know, gain control of this, regain control of the situation, that represents our best option for doing it. Um, I, I, would agree, I would agree with you uh, on that uh, entirely because Ukraine remains a sovereign uh, state, and I don't need to remind everybody of the Bu Bu uh, uh, Budapest Memorandum of 1994, which I think could have given us an opportunity for the United States and the UK to have stationed troops in Ukraine. Um, mm -hmm. And I think it would have forced 
Putin to reconsider and he would have likely said, well, these are just exercises and figure out some other way to make mischief uh, further down the road. Yeah. Um, let me let me ask you one last question. You spent 31 years in the secret intelligence service. Yes. Uh, and the amount of intelligence sharing publicly uh, by the United States, the United Kingdom, France has been nothing short of extraordinary. Um, what is the line between sharing, sharing openly, having transparency, using information as a counterweapon uh, to disinformation, and burning sources and methods that you yeah. may need in the event of a future crisis, because the Russians will adapt accordingly? Well, I think this is always a difficult calculation and uh, you know, has to be looked at um, in, in the specific context. But as a general rule, obviously, you want to protect sources and methods to the extent possible, where I think the intelligence sharing has been um, relatively easy for Western powers to do is precisely because most of it has come uh, most of the intelligence has come from from sources that are not, in fact, inherently that secret. The you know, um, intercept of ordinary uh, telephone um, communications and uh, you know, computer messaging, um, information from satellites, which everybody knows are there and knows what they can do. Um, in a sense, we're not giving that much away, which I think is one of the you know, one of the reasons why um, we we have been you know relatively profligate in terms of uh, talking about what we know. Undoubtedly, there is a lot more uh, behind that that that, that is not um, being made public. Um, but um, you know, one can see the rationale for for for. Um, you know, for, for doing um, what they did with the information as, as a justifiable, though, as it turned out, failed attempt to deter it from taking place. Nigel, uh, thanks so very much. Sadly, our time uh, is up, but would love to have you back on uh, as broad a, part of a broader strategic uh, conversation on how to deal with some of these issues. And perhaps even after uh, the, the NATO summit would, good be, good to be get, uh, would be great to get your views uh, on how the alliance can respond to this, because I agree with you, unless Putin runs into steel, he'll hide behind that nuclear shield and push us right off the stage. Thank you so very much for joining us. My pleasure. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman's cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit NorthropGrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.